Today, we are going to continue in the subject of Sabbath, secrets to the life we crave. Last week, we discussed redefining Sabbath, redefining rest. There were a couple definitions I'd like to remind us of. Uh, Beck Heinrich gave us a definition of rest that said this, the renewing of one's depleted physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual reserves. Deep internal renewal that occurs in the whole self. Didn't you define Sabbath? This is a secular researcher, not, not, a, not a church theologian. That's how, to, how to, that's how she defined rest. And then she defined Sabbath as this, a space away from people-pleasing, performing, controlling, from doing, freedom to invest my energy. It's a starting place, a place I can move out of and into the world. Whew. I was just a mess during worship. I mean, that happens relatively frequently, to be honest. But uh, today especially, and what I'd like us to do to look at this message is I'm going to talk about the movements eventually today, of the movements of Sabbath. I was inspired at studying it this week, movements of Sabbath, starting from just stopping, moving into the rest, ceasing to resting. And I feel like we're in kind of a movement this morning. I, I feel like Tiffany just nailed it at the, the, towards the end of worship, where she said, presence in the middle of your story. I'm with you in the middle. God's saying, I'm trustworthy. I'm moving in the things unseen. And I just felt like our word, our focus this morning is, let God's story meet you in the middle of your story. That, that, last, that last song that our team was singing, I can see the light in the darkness. And in that refrain, even if he doesn't, I will praise him. It's almost like a threat to darkness. Not an expectation that God won't. But this, but this abandonment, this I've sold everything, put all my chips on the table. I'm standing on this place. That even if he doesn't, I will praise him. I'm not bowing to the culture of this world. Nothing stands between. Space and time is thin when you enter his realm. Sabbath, the context of Sabbath, it might be the most religious word we have in our dictionary. Sabbath. The reason why it's so critical is because all of creation was set into place on a rhythm of rest. The Sabbath was the rhythm of how creation works. The seventh day, rest. I do not think that when God said he rested, that he was operating out of himself 24-hour days, where on that seventh day he took a day off because he was tired and exhausted from his striving. I do think that... It, what it was meant to do was to give this picture of a God that is not like other gods. That is God of all creation. That does not worship work. Work can be a wonderful gift. Sabbath is a greater gift. But Sabbath isn't a stopping of work because you're tired. It's a stopping to remember, to reflect, 
and to dwell on what is significant. The root issue that we have with being a culture of workaholics is our temptation to pursue significance. Significance is in the heart of our culture, especially Western culture. And what I'd like to do this morning is, as we move from into the message, oftentimes the message is kind of like the climax of a Sunday morning. What I'd like to do is, is to say, we, we did something in worship. We entered some realm in worship where that space between heaven and earth was thinner. And what I'd like us to do is, as you listen, as you just kind of ruminate on the words of the Lord and in the scriptures, I want to go back to that and, and respond in worship at the end. That nothing stands between us. <laughs> and even if he doesn't, I will praise him. And so in that, I'd like to do this. I'm going to read one more thing on my phone. I want to invite us to stop. To shut it down. As a new parent, I just wanted to sleep. And I think there's a few that can resonate with that. Once you start sleeping... I thought that was all my problems, is that I just needed to sleep. Now that I'm sleeping, once in a while, relatively frequently, I have found that that wasn't really the issue. The issue is I can't turn my mind off. I can't shut it down. I absolutely cannot shut it down. We, we had our anniversary this week, 13 years. Thank you, Jesus. Round of applause, please. Boom. We're going out of town this weekend to celebrate my cousin's wedding in Boston, and I have extended that because I am a man of strategy, and I like to look at, okay, we have to go across the country for a wedding. We're going to take a couple extra days, and we're going to make that our anniversary getaway. Two for the price of one. And so in that, any, any husbands in the room maybe can attest to that, you, you plan that little trip or that add-on little getaway. And uh, then you have that little, that little issue where it's like your, your anniversary is actually this week. <laughs> so you can't not do anything for it. But, but you've invested a lot of time and energy and coin on that weekend. And so your mindset as a man is, well, I, I mean, we can still go out to eat or we get a babysitter. But, and, but I mean, the real anniversary is, you know plan the weekend, right? So obviously she knows that. She knows we're going away. And, and so she knows it's not that big of a deal, you know, Tuesday night. <laughs> all right, so you guys, so I can do an illustration. Do we already know what happened? Okay. So, so we're having a discussion about maybe her concern that I have not taken the, 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 the day to the extent that she'd taken the day. But we had planned this little thing of uh, getting massages together. Not like super high-end spa. There's this amazing place just on Washington Avenue where they have like five little massage tables back to back. You can get a 30-minute foot massage for like $15. I'm, I'm not lying. Someone you told us about that. And so we, had, um, we were late for our appointment, so we had to wait outside. We were sitting on the bench, and we were contemplating maybe we shouldn't do this. We're having... We were kind of discussing my issues of um, when I thought the anniversary was. And, uh, and we were having that moment, well, maybe we should just forget the massages. And, and then, you know, the guy comes out, says it's, it's time, and we're like, now we have to go in there and do that. 
And, and all of a sudden, so I didn't, I, the point is, is like, I didn't really want to. I'm just like, just like, this anniversary thing is not working out very well tonight. It wasn't terrible. Just kind of like, just kind of that, like, we're both tired and blah, blah, blah. So we go in, lie down, put that, like, warm cloth over your face, feet go in the little bath, and all of a sudden I've entered another realm. Both of us, all our problems gone, my state has shifted, and, and it's, it's euphoric. I'm like, if you haven't had, I actually had a, a very strong man rubbing my feet, but if you haven't had a strong man rub your feet for a half an hour, now I know why my wife always wants me to rub her feet. It's amazing. Never had a man rub my feet before. It's phenomenal, and highly recommend it. I, don't, I didn't catch his name, but you can, it's down there. And um, so, so by the end of that, there was, by the way, in the middle of this euphoric state that I was in, there was a lot of pain also. I have a lot of tension in my feet, apparently, that what's-his-name decided to single-handedly work his way through. So I had some moments where it was like, I had to work through, and then after like, he was working out these tension points, it was like these waves of just kind of, wow, I needed that. And we, we, we left. And completely different human beings. Can anyone relate to anything like that, where you just can go into a place? That took 30 minutes. This wasn't like a two-hour thing. And while we're doing it, they're soft playing, meditating. I'm praying. Why do we make this so hard? We have access to the God of the universe that, that we can exchange a renewed mind and a renewed state at any given moment of any given day. And I can carry tension, stress, anxiety for days, if not weeks, on end. The Sabbath is to be that place every single week where we stop everything and we shut it down. We change our state and we're disciplined to say, God, I'm going to remember who you are and therefore who I am because of who you are. It's easier to do that when you have disciplined yourself to remove all distractions. Now, what I'm talking about right there is just kind of like a practical thing. I've got a neighbor that does, uh, he's, he's a good Christian guy, and every weekend he doesn't do a thing on Sunday. He's just Sabbathing hard. I don't know what he does. But on Saturday he gets all his stuff, his yard work done and whatever else. And then like clockwork, he's a good Texan. Like clockwork, he's drinking sweet tea, sitting on his swing, watching the fruit of his labor of all the yard work he did all Saturday. It's like lit- I could literally set my clock to it. And there's something neat about that, right, of... of of going like, here's my handiwork, my garden, it looks beautiful, let me bask in it, oh, I can now rest, it's good, good, good job. And I think there's a level of that, where we, we need to do that, just stop and take a rhythm of our life. But there's a rest that's a much deeper rest, a much deeper rest. And, and then there's, there's an aspect of time, I want to read you this quote by my, my favorite theologian, Tom Wright, and uh, he says this about, about the significance of Sabbath. Jews in Jesus' day and Jews in our own day have a very special sense of time. The Jewish view of time is part of the Jewish view of God and creation. God has a purpose for his good creation, a purpose to be worked out in time. Indeed, the Jewish people think of themselves as living within the long story of how that purpose is to be worked out. In the opening of the Bible, when God made the world, he rested on the seventh day. We probably are familiar with that. This doesn't just mean that God took a day off. 
it means that in the previous six days, God was making a world, heaven and earth together, for his own use. Building a home, God finished the job and then went in to take up residence in it to enjoy what he'd built. Creation was first and foremost, and that Garden of Eden was to be a picture, a metaphor of temple on earth as in heaven. The heaven and earth structure built for God to live in, and the seventh day rest was therefore a sign pointing forward into successive ages of time, a forward-looking signpost that said that one day, when God's purposes for creation were accomplished in full, there would be a moment of ultimate completion, a moment when the work would finally be done and God with his people would take rest, would And then he says that then Sabbath is when human time and God's time meet. And I want to read this paragraph as well. Where human time and God's time meet. He says this, one of the few things that ancient pagans knew about the Jewish people was that from the pagans' viewpoint, they had a lazy day once a week. We've kind of adopted that culture. We get two days off a week in our Western culture. We still do seven days a week. First of all, can we just not point out that creation account that Moses wrote in Genesis? We still have a seven-day week in every culture. The French tried to change it, did they not? Like 1793 or something, they tried to make a 10-day week. They've been revolting against work ever since. Can I, can I attest to that, Sophie? Yes. She's from France. So they, try, they tried to subvert God's creation, and the French have been warring against overworked peoples ever since. It's, it's, it's a reality. It's a beautiful thing, actually. Don't mess with the rhythm of creation. From the Jewish point of view, it wasn't laziness. It was the chance to celebrate time in a different mode. The Sabbath was the day when human time and God's time met, when the day-to-day -day succession of tasks and sorrows was set aside and one entered a different sort of time, celebrating the original Sabbath and looking forward to the ultimate Sabbath. This was the natural moment to celebrate, to worship, to pray, to study God's law, to study his word, to study the scriptures. The Sabbath was the moment during which one sensed the onward movement of history from its first foundations to its ultimate resolution. If the temple was the space in which God's sphere and the human sphere met, the Sabbath was the time when God's time and human time coincided. Sabbath was the time, what temple was, the space. Temple and Sabbath, space and time. We're a people that are to be subversive to the culture. Not because people aren't wired this way, but because we are meant to introduce them to a perfect father, and we can use as our witness being a people that have the rhythm that our father established in the entire created order. And as we live according to that rhythm, you will live at rest, a deep rest, People will be drawn to your rest. Creation will respond in rest. In being those people that the world is crying out to see isn't going to be done through striving through work. It'll be done through the striving, the discipline of rest. That's the invitation this morning.
So last week, we talked about the doing disease, the redefining rest and redefining Sabbath. Now, I'd, I'd like if we could go to uh, Matthew 11 very quickly. And in Matthew 11, uh, Jesus, Jesus is speaking. It's always good when Jesus talks. And I was captivated by this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in here because I do want to, I want to go somewhere with the concepts of rest and Sabbath in a little, a little bit of a unique bent. Okay, Matthew 11. Jesus says this, uh, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says this. This, I would say, Jesus as a teacher, as a rabbi, this was his core teaching. Did he have other teachings? For sure. Uh, do most people define the gospel of Jesus as this? They don't usually highlight this. But Jesus was a, a rabbi that lived in the first century. And this concept of yoke, uh, I was always taught that that yoke was this, like the, the yoke were these animals that carried this heavy load. And, and Jesus is talking about how, uh, come to me all who are laboring and heavy laden and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And we'll read this in a second. But the, the concept being like, yokes are heavy. The animals that carry, they work hard. But Jesus, he, he, he brings rest. It's kind of that. The yoke was the rabbinical teaching. So Jesus is saying, the rabbis would go around saying, this is my yoke. This is what they were known for. This is what this rabbi taught. This is what this rabbi's yoke was. Jesus had a yoke just like the other rabbis had yokes. Their yokes were their, what's your thing? And Jesus essentially says this, if you want to know my thing, if you want to know my yoke, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The religious system of that day was obsessed with rules and regulations, and they taken the law and made it into religion and put a bunch of rules on top of rules on top of rules on top of rules. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It was a completely subversive directive at the religious pharisaical system. The very next Verse, the very next chapter, he is specifically attacking the religious system and how it deals with the burden that it put on the people. The rest is talking about Sabbath. At that time, he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. If you jump down to verse 6 of chapter 12, something greater than the temple is here. And he goes back to that Genesis account where they're all so familiar with, where time and space are thin, where temple and Sabbath coalesce. And he's, he's saying essentially, you, you obsess about the temple, you obsess about the Sabbath. Something greater than the temple is here. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
what he's saying is that everything you think you understand of faith in God and how you regiment your life, I'm going to turn it upside down. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, anyone fancy a really heavy read or <laughs> intense read? I've had that book on my desk for a while. And no, I didn't see a single hand. No one's read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a few people. He was a German theologian. He, uh, he started a, a seminary, actually, to, to address the, what, was, what Hitler was doing with the Nazis. And uh, I'd heard the story before, and, and I, heard, I heard it again in a sermon this week. And he had written this book called Life Together, and there was a guy who uh, was a friend of his that was kind of a disciple, I think, that came to him and said, Bonhoeffer, this is too intense. And so Bonhoeffer takes him to see the training that Hitler was doing. The planes were coming in, and the soldiers were marching, and he gets this view of the Nazis. And and he says to this friend, he points at his seminary, and he says, this must be stronger than that, pointing to what Hitler was doing. This, the culture of heaven, must be stronger than that, the culture of man. I just, I just really believe that one of the core elements that what we do as a people, we don't separate from the culture. We have to be immersed in the culture. We just have to be stronger than the culture. We have to be able to look head on in what the world is going towards and saying, this is stronger than that. <laughs> and it is. And we can declare it before our hearts believe it. That's the invitation that the Lord gives us. And that's the power of the community, to be able to make declarations of things, to set our hearts and our lives towards things before they feel true. And so there's four movements that I want us to get at. But before I do that, I want us to get in, a, a, go, to, go to Luke 6, because it's a little bit of an easier passage to, to digest than the Matthew one. Um, oftentimes, the, the Matthew stuff is really helpful because Matthew was written to Jews uh, specifically. So anytime you're wanting to get the Jewish stuff out of it, it's very helpful. Um, if you want a quick summary version, go to Luke or Mark. That's what we're going to do right here. So Luke uh, 6. Um, just, just hold that open. And, and then I want to... Uh, no, I just want to make this, this comment about, uh, about deep rest. I sent this article out, and I know I've got a lot of quotes today, but are you tracking with me so far on the topic? Ju Judith Shulovitz, she's a, I, I think she'd call herself a practicing, a practicing Jew now, but she was a secular Jew for most of her life um, in New York, writes for the New York Times. I sent the article out this week. But she wrote a fascinating article called Bring Back the Sabbath. And at the beginning of that, uh, she shares a little bit of her own personal story. I want to read that to you. Um, and then, and then kind of make some applications out of the scriptures. She says this. She says, Sandor Frenzi, a disciple of Freud's, once identified a disorder he called Sunday neuro neurosis. Sorry, Sunday neurosis. Every Sunday, or in the case of a Jewish patient, every Saturday, the Sunday neurotic developed a headache or a stomachache or an attack of depression. After ruling out purely physiological causes, including the rich food served at Sunday dinners, Frenzi figured out what was bothering his patients. They were suffering from the Sabbath. On that weekly holiday observed by all present-day civilized humanity, 
uh, Frenzy was writing in 1919 when obviously the Sunday Sabbath was still sacred, especially where he was from in Budapest. But not only did drudgery give way to festivity, family gatherings and occasionally worship, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down. Our invitation? Shut it down. He said, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down too, stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. I'm going to read that again. But the machinery of self-censorship shut down too, stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. The Sunday neurotic, rather than enjoying his respite, became distraught. He feared that impulses repressed only with great effort might be unleashed. He induced pain or mental anguish to preempt the feeling of being out of control, which is one of our society's greatest fears, being out of control. About a decade ago, this is Shulevitz writing on her own uh, viewpoint. She says, I developed a full-blown weekend disorder of my own. Perhaps some of you have experienced this in seasons of your life, if not right now. Perhaps because I'm Jewish, it came to me on Friday nights. My mood would darken until by Saturday afternoon. I'd be unresponsive and morose. My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends and swapping tales of misadventure, in the relentless quest for romance and professional success, made me feel impossibly restless. In other words, I couldn't shut it down. I started spending Saturdays by myself, and after a while, I got lonely and did something that as a teenager, profoundly put off by her religious education, I could never have imagined wanting to do. Maybe you've guessed it. She began attending a synagogue. So, sleep experts, they say not just enough sleep is our problem with sleep. That REM, the deep depth of sleep, doesn't happen when you can't turn your mind off. It's a reason why we can't nap for eight one-hour naps. We have to get into the deep rest. But there's a rest that we need underneath our work, underneath the initial rest, that we need, we have this innate need it doesn't turn off. And that innate need is to prove ourselves. That's where significance comes from, that, that cultural stress that we have to prove something to somebody. If we can become a people that don't have to prove anything to anybody, why is that such a quote? I don't have to prove anything to anybody. Every time someone says that, they're saying that because they believe they have to prove something. Every single time. Every time you hear it in a show, a movie, or whatever else, or a little kid on the show, I don't have to prove anything to you. You're not my dad. And it's like, that's 100% right. His soul is crying out for his true dad, who speaks true identity over him, apart from works. You don't have to prove anything. But everything outside of us says we have to prove everything. The invitation of Jesus to give you rest is to give you a life where you have to prove nothing, where you rest on what he's already done. Even he rested on what was already done. When his father says, my son, whom I'm well pleased, who hasn't done a single miracle, a single work, he hasn't gone to the cross, done nothing. He blesses him. Pleased with you, apart from work. Proving ourselves and proving our significance, if the people of God do not learn to be the subversive voice in our culture, we don't have much of a voice. This must be stronger than that. We have a deep need for soul rest. 
I, I really enjoyed um, both, both the pastors, I think, that have some really key uh, voices on this are out of New York City. I, I was listening a lot and reading a lot on John Tyson is a pastor of New York City. Tim Keller, most of you probably read something on Tim Keller, New York City. Is, there's probably not a city on earth that works as hard as New York. And, and I think LA's issue isn't that we work super hard, although many of you work super hard. In LA, we have this mind-blowing access to comparison at all given moments of all given days. And regardless of what you work towards, we can't shut our minds off because we have access 24-7 through social media, through online, through endless other means and modes. And oftentimes, our work is attached to our play, right? And so we can't shut down worse than the workaholics that are actually making money on Wall Street. At least they get money for their work in New York. No one got that. That was a joke, but it was like got some truth underneath it. It's like, except for a handful of people in the industry, we're, we're killing ourselves, unable to shut our minds off in this society here. And then, and then we have just as high a price of living, and we're getting paid a quarter of the price or whatever it is. And maybe you're not that. Maybe you don't have a job, and you're just like, I just wanted a job. But the issue isn't just to have work. The issue is your significance. The issue is what you have to prove. And the beautiful thing about what we do when we enter what God's heart is to give us Sabbath is that, you know, the, the Sabbath, there's, there's moral laws in the, in the Word of God, and then there's ceremonial laws. The moral laws, like don't kill people, don't do adultery, all the heavy stuff, those are moral laws. Like when you get in the bind, you still don't do that. It's, it's like, okay, but, but I had an extreme circumstance, so I, just this once I was going to kill him. We understand, like, killing bad, adultery bad, and so forth and so on. But then you have these ceremonial and worship laws. Sabbath is like that. That's why you, you see what I just, I don't know if I read, did I read the part where, where David takes a part of the bread that was in the holy place and eats it, and Jesus says, hmm? let's read that for a second. If you're in Luke 6, it was also in the Matthew passage, but it's a little bit more concise here in Luke. Luke chapter 6, verse, uh, it's 1 through 5, but I'm going to skip through some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he's basically saying this, is that, don't you remember that David ate, it was like he was in a bind, and it was okay for him to eat the bread that was given to the priests as holiness, as holy bread? Meaning that these are moral or worship laws. It's kind of okay here. <laughs> They're provisional or temporary. So there's laws that aren't. Don't kill people. That's forever. Then there's provisional ones, the ceremonial laws. Why is that important? I can see I'm losing some of you. Here's one point. The ceremonial laws meant they were pointing to something. What is this pointing to? What is it pointing to? It's pointing to the next verse. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one all the Sabbath regulations point to. I'm the one that gives real rest, deep rest, true rest. So if you want rest, you need to go to him. And if you think you've gone to him, but you don't have any rest, you still haven't taken hold to what you have, quoting Keller. So how is he the Lord of rest and why? 
Genesis 1, God finished creation, and he says, good. In fact, everything, good, 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 good. He gets to that final day, and he goes, looks at all of it. Very good. Our translations are so weak. Good is like just good. We take our little surveys. Good is never the best, right? We put good in the middle. So it should be a different word, but the direct translation is good. It should be something like, I don't know, anyone's suggestions? Mind-blowingly, categorically, shredding your mind open with awe-inspiring goodness, good. So that's good. That's very good. I hate it when it says words that are just like weak like that. I just want one thing to get into your brain. God used the most beautiful, powerful language he had to make a statement about all of creation. And what the very good really means, it's not to just find the best adjective. It's, I'm satisfied perfectly in everything I just did. Perfect satisfaction. Have any of you had someone look at your work, maybe it's a boss or maybe a parent, someone that you're trying to please, and you're like really nervous about it, and then they look at it, and they take that moment, and you're freaking out inside, and you're trying to act cool, like you know, it's, I think I did okay. And you have that moment, and then they go, well done. And everything inside of you, you can just see the satisfaction on them. And how many of you have seen like a parent do it. It's, it's always more powerful to see the satisfaction of a parent. That's why God calls himself our father. Because as, the, as the, the child or performer, you are actually working to perform in some way. It, sometimes it's okay. Most of the time, and for this context, bad performance. But when a parent sees a child do something that's so right and so good, the satisfaction is one of the most beautiful talk about entering a space where space and time just pause for a moment when I see my kids do something that it's like they didn't do that because they followed a rule they did that because they're picking up on who they are who God is and how they can enter into a place where they can make a difference in people's lives the satisfaction that I have as a parent cannot be compared with the best meal with the best round of golf, as satisfying as that is, it cannot be compared with satisfied work elements, what I strive towards in any other area, than when a, a child gives an offering that is fully satisfied. And what God says to us is that he's already satisfied with you. We spend our entire lives trying to prove something where he's already said he's satisfied. All of creation started with God's satisfaction, that it's all good, it's all very good, and I'm satisfied. When you get that phrase in your brain, and then you see Jesus enter this story, and he goes to a cross, and his final words are, it's finished. What's finished? What's finished is the story that God started by saying, my creation is good, and I'm satisfied. They've lost it. They've been trying to prove their way back. My son has re-entered this story. 
to show them what I'm like, what I'm inviting them into. And he's now saying, what is finished? Is God satisfied? He's satisfied towards all wrath and sin and ugliness and darkness. And he's satisfied towards you, you, and you, and me forever, apart from striving. And it's why when Sue and I shared last week, the one time you're told to strive is to enter rest. Strive to enter my rest. So that's rest, being utterly satisfied in what's already been done. If you can pause and take satisfaction in your life, in your work that you've already done, you enter into that rest. So I want us to start to do two things, to pause. See if you can end your day, end your weeks, and do your Sabbath with a realm of satisfaction. We are meant to be people that are satisfied in the work of our hands because work is good. The problem is, is that what happens when we screw up? If we have to live by proving in our existence being we have to be satisfied and everything we have to have done is good, we then enter a cycle where sometimes it's good and satisfied, most of the time it's not. Because right now, every single one of us should be able to die happy. That's a big struggle for me. I've realized that most of my toiling and my inner clock, my inability to shut down, is this, my eternal inner murmur, if it's not God's voice, it's very quickly that I need to do something with my, with my life, that I can die satisfied that I've given something to him. It sounds noble. It's demonic. Because underneath that lie of wanting to give God something with my life, to do something with my life, is the lie that I need to for him to be satisfied in me. So when we pause, whether it's a daily rhythm, a weekly rhythm, a monthly rhythm, or annual rhythm, when we pause, we have to filter the satisfaction that we see towards our work through his satisfaction of all work. And his satisfaction of all work is that image of his son fully satisfying all darkness, all wrath, all sin, all shame, all guilt, once and for all, for all people, for all time. And when I take that and I transpose that on anything that I face, that gives me the fuel to be able to actually be a person that's entering the culture subversively, saying this is stronger than that, and therefore I can expect that I actually can be satisfied in my work. And if I screw it up, I'm still satisfied, because he's satisfied with me already. What lies are we believing? What lies are you believing about what you're trying to prove? And just be real with yourself. What are you actually trying to prove today? With your life? What are you trying to prove? I went way too long on that. So I'm going to end with this. These movements. Four movements. I think this was inspired by a woman named Marva Dawn, and, uh, and I was inspired from them through John Tyson. 
and then I, I reworked some of the language to apply to what we're saying, but she says Sabbath has four movements as a rhythm to rest out of. The first being stop. Shut it down and stop. We have to start stopping regularly. We, can, we have to stop getting our value from production. This is what uh, Marvadon says. The movement from ceasing to resting is the movement from idolatry to faith. First, we discover all the deception and falsehood of the securities offered by the world. And with repentance, we cease to trust them. This includes especially all of our efforts to make our own way to save ourselves. Then we learn that God has done all the work of redemption for us, and he continues to work through us. We learn by faith to rest in his grace. Stopping. Secondly, then, true resting. This doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen just because we stop work, we take a day off, we go on vacation. It's active. You know, they, they teach in seminary, they, we, every seminary I know of actually teaches you not to burn out. It's such a common pastoral thing. If our, if our people that are leading us into the ways of God have to have a class on burnout because the way of life is burnout for that profession, what hope do the rest of us have? And I can, I, I never struggled with burnout my whole life until I started striving in the realm of this role. And Sue and I are holding ourselves accountable to you that we are doing drastic things in our lives to hold ourselves, to hold ourselves accountable to the realm of Sabbath. Not just taking time off, resting our spirits, a deep inner murmur type of rest where God can speak. What happens is when you don't have that silence and solitude and resting in your spirit, God can't actually speak to you and you cannot pick up on your place in the world because there is noise constantly. We live with this push to prove ourselves, and when we don't feel like we're meeting that expectation, it's painful. And when we have pain, and we have access to numbing the pain, we numb it 100% out of 100% of the time. The act of Sabbath is addressing pain and not numbing it, and allowing him to come in and reorienting you to your priorities, to what you're living towards. And it feels like I might die if I do this. And I challenge you, if this seems super trivial, you're not getting it. If it seems super painful, you're getting it. And if it seems super freeing and amazing, you're getting it. Because wrapped up in this entire concept of true rest is everything that your heart and your soul craves. Everything. So we have to start stopping. We have to start doing true rest. Jesus intends life for the full. It's not a prosperity gospel. <laughs> but we often only rest when we're almost done. And then that season becomes lifestyle. We need space in our life. 
Again, Marvadon says this, on the Sabbath, we deliberately remember that we have ceased trying to be God and instead have put our lives back into his control. Concentrating on God's lordship in our lives enables us to return to his sovereign hands. All things that are beyond our control and terrifying to us. Once those things are safely there, and as long as we don't stupidly take them back again, because that's the greatest temptation, our emotions can find truly comforting and healing rest. Stopping, resting, and third, embracing your identity. Embracing your identity is the simple but terrifying act of saying, my identity isn't based on what I do. My identity isn't based on proving anything. My identity is fully based on being. The world will just say, because you're a human being, you can just be, and that's enough. And we need to stop saying that that's wrong, because that's actually right. We just continue it back to, you're not a human being that's completely isolated from a creator. And you will still crave, once you stop finding your identity and proving something, you still have a craving to know your creator. And that's our invitation to them. Jesus, he'll give you rest. What if that became our gospel again? Hey, come on. You know why I'm so attractive to you? Because Jesus gave me rest. Let me give you some. It's never been a part of my experience ever. And it's right there. His invitation, rest. You have access to it. The world craves it. Drink deep and give it away freely. How do we do that? Feast on it. Every seven days and probably every day. Those of you with little kids where it's impossible to find a full day, you need to find your pockets every single day to feast those of you that are living jobs that are going to make the pressure in your head explode, you need to find rest every single day. And the Sabbath becomes whatever day of the week is the day that you go nuts with it, almost militaristically, to guard everything else, to get out, shut it all down, and say, I'm going to enter rest the best way I know how. Start stepping forward because I'm going to develop this rhythm in my life or I am going to die trying. Because one way or another, you will die. If we do not get this, we do not have a message for the rest of the world. So feast. We must arrange life so that sin no longer looks good to us. That was John Ortberg. And we get this. We, we, we get the fact that you can discipline yourself towards healthy living, healthy food, healthy exercise and all that. You can discipline yourself towards craving the rest that your soul desires. Just step out and taste it. Just step out and taste it. And if I get the worship team to start to come forward, I'm going to close with just a couple other things. And then we're going to enter back in, into that because I know I went long. I, I, was, I was stirred by, uh, by a pastor. I think this was Tyson. I'm getting him and Keller confused with some of the stuff I read. But people ask him all the time. It's like, you just don't seem to be succumb to the pressure of life and everything else in the middle of New York. And he's been there now 20 years. Um, and he goes, it's two things, two keys that we've discovered. Don't you love when people just say, it's just these two things. And it's really easy to go like, 
And then you go, well, I don't do those two things. And he goes, it's the life of prayer. And we get really serious about Sabbath. And our invitation today is, what are you trying to prove? And how can Sabbath be that place where God can come in, remind you of your identity, and completely change your life? 